Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. Again, we'll be here until 5 o'clock. It's 47 degrees outside, 345 in the afternoon on this wonderful Saturday, March 16th. Uh, there's a topic I want to talk about, which is a current bill in the Massachusetts uh, House of Representatives, of course, is the that's bill House number 2007. It's now 2007 because it has been referred to the Joint Committee on Public Health, and it is titled An Act uh, for No Organized Head uh, Impacts to School Children. And this is a bill that essentially wants to eliminate youth football from grades 7 uh, and under. So I'll read uh, a brief section of it just to give you some background of what we're going to be discussing and it reads no child in grades seven or under shall play practice or otherwise participate in organized tackle football provided however that nothing within this section shall prohibit children in grades seven or under from playing practicing or otherwise participating in any form of football which does not involve tackling so i have a couple guests here that i want to introduce it's uh camden brown along with trevor brown uh both who have played uh youth uh, youth football high school football and collegiate football and so i'll introduce them now and uh camden uh could you tell us a little about who you are and what you do yeah my name is camden brown i'm currently i'm currently a wellness teacher and um at rfk lancaster school in lancaster massachusetts I've been playing football since I was about six, seven years old, and luckily I've never been diagnosed with a concussion. And I'll let you, uh, Trev, be introduced now. Sure. My name is Trevor Brown. Uh, currently, I am a law student at University of New Hampshire. Uh, I did my undergrad at Anna Maria College, where I also played football. Uh, Camden's actually my twin brother. We've played football from age six or seven until I graduated undergrad at 22 years old, so you know, 15 years, and I've also never been diagnosed with a concussion. So how do you guys feel about this bill? Is it truly going to keep our, our children safe out there, or is this just an overreach from uh, the government? I think it's a bit of an overreach. Um, if you look at what Pop Warner has done over the years, even since I've started playing, um, they've limited contact in practices throughout the week, and they've done that at the high school level as well. We were only allowed to hit twice a week through practice, and now I'm pretty sure it's down to about one time a week. Same thing at the collegiate level as well. So I would say they are limiting the head impacts, and they're making strides to be safer. Currently, they think flag football is the alternative for the younger population but studies have shown that kids are obtaining more concussions through those means of practice compared to the contact sports and that's because the kids aren't wearing headwear they're colliding head to head knee to head elbow to head head to ground which can be more dangerous than wearing a helmet absolutely and trevor what do you think you think this is actually going to keep our youth safer or is it just an overreach i think uh any way you go about it youth sports you know could have they're going to be somewhat dangerous i think um, a lot of the issues that are coming about when you have the representatives trying to make these analogies um, one that recently came up was a five-year-old driving a car i think that a five-year-old driving a car versus you know a five-year-old or you know a six or seven-year-old playing football are two things that you that actually have no con connection because Driving a car is an adult activity. It's inherently dangerous, and that's the way that goes about it. But youth football is a youth sport. It's meant for kids. It's meant for kids to have fun. Any youth sport's going to have their injuries. And um, like Cannon was saying, that once you take the helmet away, you actually run into more risk. So there's plenty of concussions in youth basketball because kids are hitting uh, their heads uh, against the floor. I mean, it's a hard floor, and a lot of the times you're not going to have a helmet. And you little kids are clumsy. They're going to run into things. They're going to run into each other. They're going to hit their heads. I mean, it's going to happen. Parents understand the risk. The, the child might not understand the risk to an extent, but, you know, that's, what, that's why we're trying to educate them on that. 
Yeah, it's that. And the, the argument that I, I really don't like that uh, some of these proponents are making is that, you know, these impacts, you know, there are the signs of CTE developing later on. It's like people have developed CTE that haven't even played sports in any case. And so I, that's one argument that really uh, bothers me is that CTE. I mean, I think it's fair to say that football has taken on a stigma throughout the years. I know recently I was talking to my representative and uh, a little bit of uh, some others. And, you know, I, I just don't think it's fair to compare concussions sustained in car accidents uh, to, you know, a five-year-old running into uh, another five-year-old on the field. But the other thing is, you know, they'll say, you know, football needs to follow in with lacrosse and soccer in terms of making it safe. But I think we, I think we all can say between 10 to 15 years, I, I feel like all changes in, to improve player safety has uh, been in place for the past 10 to 15 years. You know, so uh, I, I know, like, like, we were t- like Kim mentioned in, in college, I mean, you, you there were any, they weren't any tackle um, practices, any full contact practices, you know. So I, I just think it's part of educating both those representatives and maybe some parents that are a uh, little area of uh, this bill. But in any case, so it is referred to the Joint uh, Public uh, Committee on Public uh, Joint Public Health Committee, and uh, so it'll be it'll be interesting because I know they're going to be having a. Uh, testimony set up for it, so anyone who's interested can eventually go and testify in front of uh, the House, and I know there are some grass uh, grassroots movements happening to protect it, so it, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But in any case, um, we're going to continue on with our music, folks. We'll come back. We're going to talk a little bit about more some some news scandals, this admissions, this college admissions fraud that's been going on with these celebrities and their children. Uh, so right now, we're going to play Power of Love by Huey Lewis. Alrighty, folks, welcome back again to the Paul Seguro Show. Almost 4 o'clock, so we're almost getting ready for our next uh, break. Uh, but I did want to discuss uh, something that's in the news lately, and that's this little admission scandal that's been going around uh, with uh, Lori Lachlan, obviously Becky from uh, Full House. But we're going to do our quick break first, and then we'll come back and discuss that. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. There's Smash Mouth from, of course... Shrek. Uh, we're back in the studio. We're going to be talking about a, n- a new article coming in. Uh, <laughs> what? Nothing. <laughs> we're going to talk about a new news article that was uh, just uh, published not too long ago from the Associated Press, and that is Twin River Casino is trying to add self-service kiosks for sports betting in, in time for the start of the NCAA basketball tournament. Uh, the, Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Department of Revenue said this week that testing is on schedule with the goal of getting them running for March Madness next week. Twin River is adding 17 kiosks to its Lincoln location in 5 in Tiverton, uh, which would reduce the lines at ticket windows. Rhode Island is the only New England state that allows betting on sports. Of course, once uh, I know there was talk about Massachusetts of someone creating a bill, so I'm not sure if that ended up going through, if that's in the works. Uh, in any case, it also continues to say state officials said in February that gamblers had placed $32.8 million in wagers with $31.6 million paid on winning bets since uh, the last November launch of sports betting that leaves 1.2 million in revenue they're counting on March Madness bets to help meet revenue projections for the fiscal year being involved in sports and obviously having uh, some legal background Trev how do you feel about uh, this sports betting trying to come to uh, our local neighborhoods I've personally never actually had an issue with sports betting I really don't see any problems uh, legally speaking behind it I think that 
if you actually give you know these these companies like FanDuel and DraftKings and all these online uh, entities that allow sports betting, what what we're doing by not allowing the states to regulate it is actually going to uh, monopolize the business. So you could actually run into some issues with the the on the online betting and or just letting it allow it to happen in, in places like Vegas, these huge. Um, cities, I think if you bring it to states and let them regulate it, just like allowing the states to regulate the lottery, and um, as long as you know federal law doesn't preempt the state law with regulating, I think that it actually be good and could actually be a solid source of revenue for the states. Cam, how do you feel about uh, sports betting? Should we bring it into our neighborhoods, or is it uh, would it be a burden, and we shouldn't even bother bringing that into our neighborhoods? I think it's a very good way to bring revenue into the state. A lot of people love gambling, and whether they gamble or whether we regulate it or not, whatever the state is, people are going to bet anyway. There's plenty of places online. You have Bovada, like Trevor said. You have FanDuel and DraftKings. People are going to bet whether it's regulated in our state or in a different state, a nearby state. They're going to go to a casino. They'll go to Vegas. People are going to bet regardless of whether it's allowed. Go ahead. Just to speak to the what Camden said that no matter how it works, I actually completely agree with that. I think it's very similar to the regulation of marijuana. I think that the states started to see that they could actually gain revenue from the sale of marijuana or legalizing marijuana in certain states because whether or not it was going to happen. So why not bring in revenue and be able to tax it on top of it? Yeah, I think that's. I feel like that's what happens with a lot of these uh, topics. Once once a state realizes how much money is being made, I mean, we see uh, the effects that when uh, that Colorado. Uh, had when they legalized uh, marijuana, and then all of a sudden, states was like, "Oh wait, yeah, we should do that too. We should make uh, we should make money out of this." Uh, and, and that's what brings a great transition is that uh, just recently, Alaska is actually uh, officially the first state to license on-site marijuana consumption at cannabis stores, and, and so they're not the only ones that have uh, legalized it, but they're they're actually the only state statewide to have that legalized. Uh, it says adults 21 and over can buy regulated and taxed cannabis from licensed storefront dispensaries in a growing number of, and there goes the ambulance, okay, a growing number of U.S. states. Uh, but Alaska uh, Lieutenant Governor Kevin Meyer uh, signed new regulations into law on Tuesday. No states have been in the business of issuing permits authorizing on-site consumptions. Now, California also has this, but it's done locally at the local level during uh, um, uh, being in San Francisco, most of their dispensaries can also uh, smoke uh, on site. How do you guys feel about these dispensaries? I know a lot of people in th- that I've talked to, they say, oh, you know, I, I like to legalize marijuana, but when it comes down to having a dispensary in their neighborhoods, they feel a little bit different. I think, oh, no, I don't want that in my neighborhood. How do you guys... Uh, feel about uh, marijuana dispensaries or just a a legalization of marijuana? See, I think it's kind of like gambling, like you said. Um, I know there's a lot of, being a health teacher, I do teach the students that there are a lot of negative effects of using marijuana, whether you're smoking it, eating it, however you end up um, ingesting it and getting high from it, but it does stunt brain growth, cognitive development in younger children. And I think that when parents have a dispensary into the neighborhood, the kids immediately think, okay, it's okay. I can do it. My friends are doing it. And I think parents may be afraid that their kids may use this as a gateway to something worse. So I am not, I guess, totally um, opposed to the marijuana dispensaries because it does bring in revenue. And like we said before, people are going to do it regardless whether it's illegal or not. But I think there needs to be some type of restraint of people taking it. And, yeah, that's my opinion on it. Absolutely. Trevor, how do you feel about uh, 
So, say they were to put a dispensary in your neighborhood, would you uh, be for it, against it, or just say, ah, I don't want to even bother with this stuff? It's, it's kind of funny you say that because I'm from Gardner, Massachusetts, and they actually just put up a dispensary called Sanctuary right next to the local friendlies. I think that's kind of a weird place to put it because right next to the friendlies, you know, where parents bring their kids to get ice cream cones or something, there's a marijuana store blatantly. You can tell it's a marijuana store. It says Sanctuary on the front, their logo you know, almost screams marijuana. Personally, I was never on board with the legalization of marijuana, but I knew it was inevitable with the way that, you know, Colorado did it first, and then all of a sudden it, it um, became decriminalized to a certain extent. Um, I think those are issues. But I, the thing I'd be curious about when you said Alaska allows smoking on site, I'd be curious if they run into the same type of liability issues that you would at any other bar, you know, allowing people to who are way too intoxicated to drive, well, now you run into the issues of operating under the influence. Even if people will say that it doesn't have the same effect on you as alcohol will, I still think you, you do run into the issue with slow reflexes, slow reaction times. It can actually um, you know, cause your vision to fail. I mean, you see things that you don't. It's not hallucinogenic in a sense, but it also you know, runs into issues where you don't really know what you're looking at. So I think the, from a legal perspective, I think the issue would be liability. Yeah, I, I think I know in Attleboro, uh, when we were discussing having these dispensaries in, uh, the main concern that they had, and uh, City Councilor Todd Kobus was a, um, essential in this, was just the zoning laws behind it. So originally they wanted to do industrial zones and have it, you know, so many feet away from specific schools or whatnot. And uh, you know, I know some councilors were opposed to it, but it, you know, I mean, if you look at it, the amount of liquor stores that are around uh, our neighborhoods and even closer to schools, uh, and those are uh, commercial. Uh, zoning, but if we did it to industrials, I don't see anything uh, wrong with that as long as it was a uh, specific distance away. I mean, it, it is a huge uh, revenue generator. Uh, but in any case, so that's the, the take on the marijuana. Again, Alaska is officially the first state to license on-site marijuana consumption at cannabis stores. And that, uh, that was just uh, published uh, this week. Uh, so anyway, we're going to continue on with our music. Of course, we're going to go uh, Unchained Melody. Welcome back, folks. Again, just that advertisement right there, that commercial about the Bristol County uh, House of Correction. Of course, you can watch it online. Or if you hop on to Facebook and you go to the Polo Salguero Show, um, I have the link up there pin, pinned to the top. So you'll be able to see both uh, Sheriff Hodgins' uh, interview as well as Frederick's story. Uh, it was uh, myself along with David Angel and other members of the WACS studio uh, made the film. So I hope it's insightful for the community out there. Uh, in any case, we're going to continue on with our news stories. Uh, this admission scandal that recently came out celebrities involved in paying extra money kind of bribing uh, coaches uh, to kind of get their students on their students their children um, on sports teams where they never even have experienced playing that specific sport but in any case what do you guys think about this why are parents paying bribing uh, these coaches or admissions representatives for to, to get their their kids into specific schools I mean, I think the easy question to when you say why do people pay it's because they want their children to go into a top school, especially at in that. Am I good? Yeah, you're good. I think it definitely speaks to, especially when you know people who are in, in the power of, I guess, famous. They want their children to go to the top schools to almost speak to the prestige. But I think that the, this scandal coming out and it coming forward to show that there's schools across the nation that are actually allowing people to. There's the children to be bribed into school. I think it speaks to disparity of bargaining power between the socioeconomic classes. It shows that, you know, you can buy your way into anything. And like they say that money doesn't buy happiness, but apparently it buys you school admission and a good job and all these other things. 
And I think that's definitely an issue for these these kids that are actually more qualified, but they don't get into the school because their their spot was actually bought by somebody who had power. I think that being blessed with money can can be a good thing, but but when your parents start doing everything for you or you're using that money for all the wrong reasons, it definitely runs into a, a huge issue that's gonna you know have kids you know going into college not want to go to college anymore because they're going to think I have no shot because someone's going to buy their spot. So Yeah, there was I found I wasn't too surprised uh, that they were work with admissions departments in terms of trying to bribe. What surprised me is that they were paying for specific SAT scores. I would have never thought you'd be able to bribe uh, at that level. But to give some uh, background to our listeners, federal prosecutors say 50 people took part in a scheme, a scheme that involved either cheating on uh, standardized tests or bribing college coaches and school officials to accept students as college athletes, even if the student had never played that sport. Actresses Lori Lagoflin and uh, Facility Hoffman are among the dozens of parents facing federal charges. Others charged include nine coaches at elite schools, two SAT and ACT administrators, an exam proctor, a college administrator, and a CEO who admitted um, that he wanted to help the wealthiest families get their kids into elite colleges. How did this work? Well, um, it was all orchestrated by William Ricksinger, the CEO of a college admissions prep company um, called The Key. Uh, Singer pleaded uh, guilty to four charges Tuesday and admitted that everything a prosecutor accused him of is true. Don't know if that was the best defense he could have used in court, but <laughs> it's what he uh, wanted to go with. In any case, uh, so that's going to be continuing on. We'll be following that and updating everyone. Uh, but uh, if involving some of these schools, University of Texas at Austin said Wednesday it dismissed men's tennis coach Michael Center a day after placing him on leave. Center is charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud. He could not be reached Tuesday. That's um, expected. Uh, Georgetown University said it was deeply disappointed to learn former tennis coach Gordon Ernest is charged in the scheme as well. Yale University will continue cooperating with investigators after former women's soccer coach uh, Rudy Meredith was charged. UCLA, also involved, has put their men's uh, soccer head coach George Salcedo on leave as he faces charges as well. So this will be a pretty interesting story to see how that folds out, uh, folds together. And then uh, we'll keep you in touch with that. So anyway, we're going to continue on with uh, our movie soundtrack, of course. And here's You've Got a Friend in Me. Welcome back, folks. That was Shallow, but Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, which just recently won the Best Original Song Award at the Golden Globe Awards, of course. Uh, Continuing on with our discussion, there was another article that was recently published uh, that uh, whether or not, so, so there was a congresswoman from Massachusetts. Uh, her name is Ayanna Presley. Uh, she's from the 7th con- con- ah, Congressional District of Boston, which is mostly Boston uh, cities and, um, and, and municipalities. But anyway, she proposed legislation to lower the voting age to 16. Now, this was her first proposal as a Massachusetts congresswoman, and uh, w- it was an amendment to lower the voting age for federal elections from 18 to 16. On March 7th, the House representatives made short work of that measure, defeating it uh, by a large bipartisan majority. Uh, and then and it goes on to say, you know, everyone was critiquing her and criticizing her for that. But she does state uh, that 16 and 17-year-old kids are qualified to vote by virtue of the, quote, wisdom and quote um maturity that comes from being alive and confronting the challenges hardships and threats of 2019 overall what do you guys think about this do, do, should we lower the voting age to 16 should we just keep it at 18 what's going on here 
I personally think you run into some sort of issues when you lower the voting age to 16. I mean, even in, uh, when I was an undergrad, we had a professor who asked a question in class, you know, who do you guys, you know, make an argument for somebody in, in class and... Make an argument for someone in class? You were saying, <laughs> yeah, well, you stop. Just so like, they say make an argument for, you know, your candidate in class, and some people didn't even know anyone who's running. Even somebody like Trout, uh, Trout, Trump or Clinton, I think you run into that issue that even people who are over the voting age aren't even informed of the political process. And so I think that even people who are in high school who are less exposed to that political process, how would they actually become informed? And I, I don't think it, it's a, a – I think when she said the wisdom, I think they do have the wisdom to be able to make an informed decision when voting for a political candidate. But I think that when you're 16 years old, you actually don't – you actually don't have that type of interest, and it's not introduced in school, so I think you run into that sort of issue. Yeah, absolutely. Cam, what do you think about this? Should we lower the voting age to 16, or is that just too uh, too far-fetched? No, I completely agree with what uh, Trevor was saying. 16, I think a lot of kids at, at 16, even at 18, but I think 18, once you – like you mentioned earlier prior for us talking about this, but at 18, if you can get go into the military, you should be able to vote for who's running the country. But at 16, 18, in that age range, there's a lot of things that kids think about and with social media and school and what they want to do later in life and friends, social life, family, sports, all that stuff. I think politics just gets put to the back burner. There are a few kids that pay attention. There are select um, situations where kids are really involved in politics, but I think that those few kids will need to wait until they're 18 to vote. Yeah, you know, I would all, I, I, all, I also agree. But the other thing is, like, there are some adults out there that I talk to, and they're just they, they're not following uh, politics or any policy or even local issues that's going on. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know her backing behind this, what essentially started, if it was uh, truly proposed by her or if she was confronted by a constituent that wanted to file the bill. But in any case, I mean, I, I agree. I don't think 16 um, should be the voting age. I think 18 is uh, perfectly fine. Uh, in any case, so we're going to continue on with our music. That was just, we just want to highlight that for everyone there. So again, we're continuing on with our movie soundtrack songs. And so uh, let me find one here that's good for Dude, I everyone. think we should play uh, Million Dreams from The Greatest Showman. Million Dreams. Let's see. Yeah. By Pink. Million Dreams by Pink. Do, 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 do. Do, do, do. Million Dreams by Pink. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Seguero Show. Again, that's uh, Don't Forget About Me, obviously, from The Breakfast Club. We were just talking a little bit off ear how if The Breakfast Club was filmed today, it would just be a bunch of kids on their phones and uh, not even uh, dealing with actual social interactions. But have you guys realized uh, from when you, you know, from elementary school to middle school to high school, now even now looking at, uh, you know, Cam being a teacher and Trevor also being a sub, um, how technology has impacted the classrooms or just uh, society in general? You guys, see any? You have any? Uh, you, you have your students on the phones at, during well, class? Or? Luckily, I work at a specialized school, and a lot of the students we don't allow them. They're not allowed to have their phones in school. I know a lot of public schools say that, but we're not a public school, so we do have check-ins in the morning to make sure that the kids do not have their phones on them. So we don't run into that problem. But working in a public school system, which I have for three years as a substitute teacher, uh, especially when a sub is in the classroom, you just notice the kids, one, you know that they don't want to pay attention to the sub. They think it's an easy day. They don't have to do any work. And those kids just are on their phones the entire time. I'd rather them talk to each other and be loud the entire time than just look down at their screen and text. 
What about you, Trev? Have you seen a lot of kids on uh, cell phones when you were uh, subbing in the school system? I, I think yes. I, I speak to exactly what Camden said. When you're a substitute teacher, a lot of people actually don't think that you're going to enforce anything, which, you know, we only have so many things we can enforce because you're a substitute teacher. But still being in school, uh, I, th I think it really speaks to just the, and I don't mean to sound harsh, but how socially inept some kids actually are just to hold the conversation. Like, I'll be walking in the hallways at school, and I'll, I'll just say, like, hi to somebody, or like, how are you doing? And they just don't respond because they're looking down at their phone, or they'd be, you know, they're checking the, the latest post on Instagram or something along those lines. I mean, I, th I think um, at this point in, in school, you don't really see how many, uh, how many kids on their phone too many times in class. We used to see it all the time in undergrad. But I think it's just so many kids have trouble holding a conversation are so scared to talk to people because, you know, they can't. They've, they've never really had that experience because everything's been done on the computer or over the phone. or And it's just something they're not used to. So I think that that's definitely run to the issue. Uh, I think one of the scenes from The Breakfast Club where all the kids were in detention, I think if you had that now, the kids would, you know, be on their phones instead of, you know, just talking to each other or, you know, speaking to one another and just, and just doing anything. I, I don't think that if that movie was... In today's day and age, they made it realistic. It'd be kids sitting silently in a room for an entire week. Or week, week. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's interesting because I like the Breakfast Club because, and I mean, maybe you could still, um, maybe it's still relatable to t today, but I felt like everyone knew at least someone like each character in that movie. You know what I mean? Like, um, what, what was it? Uh, Emilio Estevez kind of played like the jock or whatever. And then it was like kind of so maybe a socially awkward student that, you know, um, if you will, they call them, you know, quote, uh, outcasts, if, uh, you know, and then there's the the preppy uh, girl, if you will. But I feel like everyone, I think that's what I liked about that Breakfast Club is because everyone could relate to at least someone in there. Uh, but, yeah, I feel like if it was uh, in today's day and age, it would just be uh, them on their phones. I mean, it's weird because, and I also think that that could impact, like, public speaking because, I mean, so many kids now are, you know, at the high school level, if they have to present, they're, they have such a fear of public speaking. And I mean, I, I get it's in general, a lot of people fear that, but I feel like uh, how uh, utilized the cell phones are and how uh, it's impacted the youth, I feel like that also contributes to it. Uh, so already, folks, we're going to continue on with shit. Uh, oh, I was going to almost give the song away, but uh, we're going to do this state in history because there's one thing that I found that was pretty interesting today, and it was uh, the, the founding of Freedom's Journal. And this was founded on this day in 1827 as a four-page, four-column, standard-sized weekly Freedom's Journal was the first black-owned and operated newspaper in the United States. And it was established the same year that slavery was actually abolished in New York State. Uh, so that, that was, I found that pretty interesting. I thought I would share it with all our listeners out there. Um, if you want to learn more, you can obviously just type in Freedom's Journal. And there's a huge uh, article on it and there's a bunch of different websites that are discussing it. But anyway, we wanted to continue on with this, and we were just talking about uh, the movie uh, Sing. It's uh, an animation where they all sing a bunch of different um, famous songs. So we're gonna go. We're gonna continue on with uh, "Shake It Off" by Taylor Swift. We belong together, of course, by Pat Benatar. There's a, there's been a top, there's a news story. Obviously, everyone's probably heard of this, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. Uh, but this New Zealand uh, terrorist attack that has happened. Um, Obviously, our prayers and condolences out to the families involved, but uh, I was just reading that the death toll has risen to uh, 50 involved in this. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a sad event, but what do you guys ultimately think of this? I mean, I know uh, there was Trump just mentioned it today that uh, he commented and there was an uproar of it because he said uh, the white nationalist kind of uh, movement is not on the rise, but, you know, 
what do you guys think about, I guess, maybe gun violence or these terrorist attacks in general? What do you guys make of this? What are your kind of thoughts about it? I just think it's it's kind of silly for Trump to say that. And I know a lot of people have their views of Trump and, you know, they think that he just kind of says whatever he wants to say. And I think this is kind of one of those instances where the person who actually committed the, you know, actually helped and commit the terrorist attack threw up the white nationalist uh, symbol, which is actually an upside down OK sign. And he did that right before and they looked into him. He actually was targeting Muslims. And that's that's the issue. And I think it's important to note that this was a terrorist attack against Muslims. Um, and if we're ever going to defeat this dangerous idea that Muslims are in- inherently violent or outside invaders, it's not a, enough to just stand with the Muslim community. It's not enough to just be outraged um, on behalf of the Muslim community. We have to realize that you know, at, at this point globally, because of the, uh, the way that we can travel from country to country easily, countries begin to assimilate, religions begin to assimilate. And I think that we have to realize that the Muslim community at one point is going to assimilate into our community, whether or not we're from New Zealand or United States or anywhere in the country. I think it's, it's very important to note that our faith should never matter more than our humanity. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, that's why when any event like this happens, you always hear like the push from the politicians about gun gun laws or gun rights. But it, it takes way more than that. It's a social and cultural um, change that has to happen, how we feel about one another. But uh, Kim, did you have any uh, comment on uh, this, uh, this, this ter- terrorist attack that happened in New Zealand? Um, I would say, well, obviously, I disagree. Terrible um, condolences to the families. But I think a lot of the people that are doing it now, these um, attacks, obviously they have some messed up views of how their um, race is better than another race. But I think also the reason people do it is is for some type of fame. They want to etch themselves in a course of history. It's a lot of people that are outcasts that don't have family, that feel neglected by society. So I feel like this is their way to be known. And I think if somehow that we could cut back on the um, media out 